Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Santiago Solari, who currently manages Mexico's Club America. Before that, he was the manager of Real Madrid. We've had some great guests lately, including Chris Richards, Chris Jones, and Sarah Spain. I also encourage you to check out my podcast series, American Prodigy, The Freddie Adu Story. All eight episodes are out, and you can binge all of them to your heart's content. We'll have Santiago Solari on soon, but we're going to start by venting and hopefully talking straight talk about the U.S. failing to qualify for the Olympic men's tournament once again, three straight times, losing two to one on Sunday night to Honduras in the winner take all deciding qualifier. Chris Whittingham is here. He's the radio voice of Inter Miami and the co-host of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you, my man? Only (laughs) 10 minutes ago, the U.S. had another Olympic qualifying debacle. We both started our Zoom call with, and that's just my general state of mood at the moment. (laughs) I did uh, pour myself a nice drink here. So um, it's, it's still fresh. This game only ended about 20 minutes ago here on Sunday night. And, uh, you know, like I'm following Twitter, I'm following the game. And I realized that men's Olympic soccer is, is not the world cup. It's an under-23 tournament. It allows three overage players per team. That said, I have always stated before and now that for the U.S., the men's Olympic soccer tournament is more important than it is for European countries especially. You know, I think South American countries take it actually fairly seriously. Um, Central America definitely does. Africa does more. Um so I'm I'm seeing some excuses in in the Twitter timeline. I'm seeing some people saying, "Ah, oh, not that big a deal." You know, the U.S. has a bunch of under 23 players who weren't involved in this qualifying tournament who are with the U.S. men's senior team, didn't get released by their European clubs because they don't have to be for Olympic qualifying. And right now, I don't want to hear a single one of those excuses because. The U.S. men's soccer program needed a qualifying W of some sort. Obviously, the senior team didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup, biggest failure in U.S. soccer history. That has cast a cloud over the program. But the two previous Olympic qualifying failures were pretty bad, too. To have a third one in a row... um, It's just, it's sort of like a a kick in the stomach, I think, for U.S. men's soccer. And it's a real missed opportunity because I do think that if the U.S. men had qualified, that not all of their their stars would have gone to Tokyo, but I think some of them might have. And I think it could have earned some, some real additional excitement for U.S. men's soccer heading into World Cup qualifying in the fall. We're not going to get that now. And... And I'm, I'm bothered by that. Uh, I'm troubled by that. I think um, there, there's no... I'm not going to put a happy face on this, Chris. No, I mean, the only positive spin is that in tournaments previous, it was an indication, failure to qualify for the Olympics, that the U.S. was not developing young players. That is no longer the case. We know that the U.S. is developing young players. Many of them featured on the same day for the men's national team at senior level against Northern Ireland in a 2-1 win. But that's where the positive spin ends. I agree with you. I think this is a substantive failure. It is, when you compare the pedigree of the two teams, like I know people are saying don't underestimate Honduras, but I think a lot of, immediately when the U.S. fails at this level, the attention turns to MLS and has MLS been a good thing for the development of U.S. men's national team players and this is a mostly MLS squad but you lost to the the key contributors in the game for Honduras are playing in the USL they're playing in level beneath the MLS or beneath MLS forgive me for saying the MLS but it's just one of those things that you see this U.S. performance and the reason why it's significant and it matters is that it mirrored other U.S. 
failures from a quality of performance standpoint that we've seen before. It felt like there was a mile in between the defensive line and the midfield line, and then there was a mile between the midfield line and the forward line. How often have we seen just a complete and utter lack of connectivity? a complete and utter lack of creativity, particularly through midfield areas. Aaron Herrera crossing and Sam Vines crossing was basically the only thing that was creative in this game from the U.S. men's national team. Outfought in central areas, they could not win the ball back even in the last 15 minutes when they're desperate to try and win the ball back. Their pressing was poor, I thought, throughout the tournament and and especially today. And you just see all of the markers of American performances that are huge failures on high-stakes, big-occasion levels, right? There was almost nothing that distinguished that performance from the, the loss to Trinidad and Tobago, the last loss to Honduras in the Olympic qualifying tournament. These all look the same. The U.S. has a brand, and that brand is that performance today against Honduras. And for Americans to get on board beyond the American soccer bubble, You've got to get to the Olympics because it's a big stage. And you have to not look like this in big games. There were probably people that turned this game on because it was a big deal. And it looked like every U.S. men's national team game. And so the next time a U.S. men's national team is gone is on, fans are going to be like, why am I bothering with this? And until the U.S. proves at a major level that they're not like this, and not only do fans have every right to think that, I think we should all kind of adopt this mentality of, all right, U.S. men's national team, prove you're not this, like in, in, in a meaningful, important game, not in a friendly in Austria against Jamaica, in a real important game. And th- it's just another indication that they haven't really changed. This U.S. team was never good in this tournament. No. They really weren't. You know, they, they won the first game against Costa Rica, didn't play well, and you're kind of like, okay, they got the three points. That was kind of big. Um Dominican Republic struggled for a really long time, got some goals late. It's Dominican Republic. And then cool. lost and then lost to Mexico. Um and 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 didn't like never once showed a real fight. I'm sorry. I, I just didn't see it. Jackson Ewell may be the only one that you could say was playing the Polisic role that he had in that awful game in Trinidad. And very similar, by the way, U.S. goes down 2 nothing. You get a goal somewhat early in the second half, and you're like, okay, they got time. Nope. And, and, and there were chances. And they weren't finished. There was one bad refereeing call. I'm not going to make a huge deal about that. Yeah. Um, and Honduras deserved a win. Yeah. And they're going to their fourth straight Olympics. And and you know what I was thinking of? I don't know why this popped up in my head. I remember covering the 2012 Olympics and I covered Honduras, Brazil. In that Honduras performance, they did not beat Brazil, but Roger Espinosa was so good in that game. And it was the Newcastle Stadium against a team with Neymar. And Roger Espinosa, who nobody in the stands had heard of before that game, got a standing ovation when he came out. That's the type of performance you want to see from an American player in one of these situations. And we don't see it. And I do think this can compare to the senior team because I just have this feeling that all of U.S. men's soccer thinks they're better than they are. And I see U.S. men's senior players playing at at these really big clubs now in Europe, and that's great. And it's got people excited. And, and you know what? That's I get it. But don't just assume that because that's happening, you're going to win games against anybody. And I, I just there, I, I want U.S. men's soccer to get away from this feeling of entitlement, whether it's the senior team or the under twenty three team, and get back to what U.S. soccer, at its best on the men's side, was always about: being hard to play against, being better than the sum of your parts, and 
and beating the teams that were overconfident occasionally against the U.S. And we've seen that at the 2002 World Cup. We've seen that at the 2010 World Cup to an extent. We saw that in the 2009 Confederations Cup. The 94 World Cup team had its moments. And that mentality is what we've lost over the last five years or so. And I'm not going to believe that it's back until we really see tangible evidence of it. And, and we, we certainly didn't see it tonight with this team. Well, and I'm, I am kind of curious from that standpoint, if playing in Europe for some of these guys does kind of harden them into that intensity because you do have to compete for your spot every time you take the field. Christian Pulisic, in some ways it's a good thing that he struggles to find his place at Chelsea because he's got to work for it, right? There, There is no taking your foot off the gas pedal, right? And so in some ways that level of competition can be a good thing. And this is where I think the MLS thing kind of does come into play a little bit. And I think as well, and, and I should expand on the MLS point, to me it's kind of that a lot of players who go from MLS academies into MLS first teams can get the feeling as though they've arrived, right? Particularly if there isn't for the moment any prospect towards moving towards Europe. If this is kind of your final destination, then you kind of treat it as such. Whereas players from Honduras, from even the Dominican Republic there at times, there were times where they outfought the U.S. men's national team. There's just a greater intensity in their play because of where a lot of those players come from and what ultimately their future is going to be in the game. But I do kind of wonder if Jurgen Klinsmann deciding to evolve the U.S. style of play, and let's be real, American managers have continued that after that, right? After, you know, when Bruce Arena took over and, and now with Greg Berhalter, Greg Berhalter is trying, along with Ernie Stewart, to implement a completely different style of play than what was successful for those teams. It's based off of being better with the ball than your opposition. But in that, and I thought, and I think early on where the Berhalter era was trending in the wrong direction was more of an emphasis on that than actually, you know, imbuing the players with that intensity that you're talking about. It's more about being fancy than it is about being tough and winning games, right? And I think at the beginning, it was a little bit too much of a kind of tactical exercise rather than competitive, intense games. And I think Berhalter has grown in that. And I wonder kind of what Jason Christ was coaching, because I, I will say I, I saw his Fort Lauderdale CF teams. That's his last full managerial job. And it is about teaching the game in that way. So I do kind of wonder if Christ kind of switched back into, oh, this really matters and every game's got to be intense and on it. But I think in the evolution of the style of play, do you lose that American character that for whatever American success has been on the international level, it has been down to, as you said, working harder, being tough to play against, a complete and total sum of the parts. Whereas now, as you evolve the style of play, do you lose that bite in the tackle, that even a little bit of dark arts? I mean, there was no intimidating Clint Dempsey in a big game. Who is that figure in the American national team right now? There's no intimidating blank. And I don't know if a single U.S. player in this youth national team had that, or even if a single, a single senior national team player has that. There is a little bit of steel and intensity that has always been, I think, probably the thing that American fans most identify with and most enjoy about this national team. And so I do wonder, as the U.S. tries to evolve into a nation that develops players that are better technically and better creatively, if you are losing what is ultimately the thing that American fans most identify with? No, that's a great question. I would like to think, maybe I'm naive, I would like to think it's possible to combine. It's not an, a, like a binary situation that you either are going to be creative and soft or not creative and hard. Like, there's a way to build balance into teams. I, I do think players over the years, whether it's Clint Dempsey or Jermaine Jones, like there's some pretty tough guys yeah. like on some of those US teams. And I, I certainly don't see a sort of enforcer <laughs> no. much the, these days. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I think right now people are excited about the US senior team. I get it. I want to, you know, they need to show it on the field. And 
uh, and not just assume that the winds are going to come. And believe me, they're going to get tested, um, you know, when World Cup qualifying starts in September and you've got 14 games over just five windows. We're going to learn a lot about those guys that we don't know today. And maybe it'll be good, you know. Maybe they'll qualify for the next World Cup with ease. There's My feeling is there's always going to be moments in a World Cup qualifying campaign that are difficult. But I do hope that the U.S. under Burhalter finds a way to to combine these different aspects of of an identity and 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 get some get back some of what has been the best about the U.S. While you know, like when you look at Bob Bradley's best teams, they did have some talent in Dempsey and Donovan, and and really push to you know get those guys on the ball in positions where they could create and that did happen but there were still like like and as always it, it depends on who the opposition is if the u.s senior team is is playing in Concacaf world cup qualifying against teams that aren't mexico costa rica or honduras that's a different deal than if you're playing um brazil or argentina or England, and you know you got to figure out what's going to work. And certainly, it, it's nice to have some guys who are really confident and talented on the ball who have some sauce. Yeah, you know, every time Serginho Des touches the ball, you think he's going to pull something like cool. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm writing things off. I, I just am, am disappointed with this particular team. Uh, we had Jason Kreis on the show a couple weeks ago. He's a good man. Um, he explained what he was hoping to get out of this tournament, out of this team. He answered direct questions about why he didn't bring Eric Williamson or Jeremy Abobasi. Uh, he answered questions about whether there would be enough creativity in midfield. Unfortunately, there wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I noticed it seemed like he was right relying on Georgi Mihaljevic to really provide a lot of that, and then he took him off at halftime tonight right because he wasn't playing well and I do think that those decisions we should scrutinize them because they are I think wrong in retrospect right I mean you mentioned Williamson and Ibobasi the two players that were picked ahead of them were Sebastian Soto who's barely played and Johnny Cardoso who was bad at this tournament right and you do kind of start to look at you know, a full-on depth in the player pool you're talking about all these World Cup qualifiers and I think the worrying thing about this failure to qualify for the Olympics is if any of these players are called upon at World Cup qualifying because there's injuries, because there's nine games in three months and kind of crammed into a six-week period, if any of these guys have to feature, I don't think a lot of American fans will be have a great deal of confidence in those guys lining up. And I do think that the next line of players after kind of like your top 15 in the player pool right now that you have a great deal of confidence in. And so you do need your best players to be fit and available for all those games if you're going to be confident. But I think that's kind of the, the the major takeaway from this tournament is that there's really not a lot there in this crop of players, right? Like, I think there's some good, probably longtime MLS veterans in this group, but probably not a ton of ceiling elsewhere. I thought probably the, the, the players that were most in line to kind of see a step up were probably the fullbacks. I thought Aaron Herrera and Sam Vines had right. good tournaments. And the goalkeeper actually Ochoa up until he makes a dreadful mistake. Which again, if we're in a, we we talked about this before the podcast, if we're a different soccer nation, we probably lead with the goalkeeper and make him a goat. I'm I'm someone who I don't like doing that because number one, it's a mistake; it happens. But number two, I felt like the game was lost before that. Like yes, yes, it takes you to two 0 Yes, you even get a goal back after a wonder strike from Jackson Ewell. But um. I, I, I'm just not someone who's really interested in, in picking out the, the, the one mistake is the reason why a keeper is bad or good. That being said, beyond that, I just don't remember that many individual performances. Even So Tanner Tessman comes on as a sub and was really good for like 10 minutes, but right. how, is he, how is he running out of gas? Like, he ran out of gas in 10 minutes. And so, like, there's just so many individuals out there where I just I don't remember them doing a great deal that was impactful. And that is the disappointing part. And to go back to the MLS clubs now for the most part, some major improvement is needed if they're going to be full internationals and some real questions to be asked if they're ever even youth national teamers to begin with. Right. Um, you know, I, I wanted more from Jesus Ferreira in this tournament. Mm-hmm. I know he had the goal against Costa Rica in the opening game. Um, I don't feel like he 
played that big of a role thereafter. Um, and I think he actually, among all these players, has you know a, a chance to to ha- have an influence on the senior team even before too long. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, it, this wasn't a very fun team to watch. Um, it became a painful team to watch. Um, and you don't you don't leave it with any players going. Oh, I can't wait to see what that guy's future is like. I, I don't think you're going to, you know, watch them go back to their MLS clubs and expect huge development and a move to Europe. Right. Um, and I guess, like, I'm I'm less upset particularly with Ochoa on the early second half goal. It was a terrible mistake. And it, it was the decisive goal of the game, by the way. Yeah. But what I'm more kind of bothered by is... That was right after half. So you're thinking that whatever halftime message there was, they'd just given up a goal to go down. And so you're like, these guys are going to come out of the gates in the second half and be just ready to go, fired up. And they concede a ridiculous goal in the first few minutes. And... (laughs) <laughs> the mark of bad teams are conceding before halftime and after halftime, right? <laughs> and the U.S. knocked both of those out of the park today. And it really was a sign of just generally, again, going back to the style. Now, I, I think that the U.S. are heading towards a path of where I think most teams have gone. And ultimately, if you're going to be the best national team in the world, you have to beat the best national teams in the world at their game. And so I'm not offended at all. As, as a matter of fact, I think it's the right thing that the U.S. is progressing their style. But a bad version of that style is what we got in this tournament. And a bad version of that style puts you in vulnerable positions and frankly is terrible to watch, right? Yeah. Like watching the U.S. Men's na- the US youth national team's back four attempting to pass out from the back in this tournament was painful, was painful painful and Jackson Ewell getting marked out of the game because he's really the only one that can pick out passes and every opposition knew all right go go to their number six and try and you know get him off the ball a fairly simple strategy and it's not like Andres Perea came in and you know was a significant improvement on that or can even do a facsimile of that job and so that the 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 back four and the midfield three and even the goalkeeper attempting to pass was painful. Like the number of overhit passes attempting to hit fullbacks or wingers sailing over their heads in this game was horrendous. And so I do think that maybe when you get into these kinds of settings, I understand that it is a youth tournament and ultimately player development is still part of the goal, but you got to win. You got to qualify. You got to qualify. So how, by any means necessary. And, Saying a youth tournament, these guys are professionals now. They're not true. college true. players. You know, 100%. I mean, like, this is a sport. Like, under 23, some of these guys have been pros for years. And and so I, I'm i not going to be okay with, like, every other possession, a, a simple outlet pass being too short and going out of bounds, going wide, or too long going out of bounds, going wide. That happened, like, so many times. I was just, like, and, shaking and my again, head. And again, it's like it's part of this brand that I mentioned earlier. This U.S. men's now. How many times do we see the U.S. in big games fail to make simple passes, right? right. And it just it looks like they've never passed a ball before. I mean, against Trinidad and Tobago, that's what it was for ninety minutes, right? Just players unable to hit passes for ninety minutes, and. It just looked like that again, and that's like the, when is the U.S. player going to evolve to a point where we get into a big game and I don't feel like they forget everything they've ever learned about football? Like, that's that's the next evolution, which is a fairly low bar, isn't it? It should be. It really should be. Um, all right. Yeah, this has actually helped, I think, to talk, to talk <laughs> it out a little bit. It's still really... It's just so frustrating. Like I, I actually thought, like tonight, like the most, the more likely scenario was that the U.S. wouldn't necessarily play great, but they'd find a way. Yeah. No, nope, not even that. Right, and <laughs> I mean, you're you're hoping to get to halftime at nil nil because you've been outplayed for 45 minutes. Right. And you know what's actually into like the the minor like kind of positivity in the game was all right. So a two nil. The U.S. goes to a kitchen sink approach, right? Throwing everyone mm-hmm. forward. They gave up a couple of counterattacks. They were pretty hairy, but you know what? Kitchen sink, they're going for it. They get the goal from Jackson Yule to 2-1. But before that, they were creating chances. It was by far their best spell of the match. 
And then they pull the handbrake again. And it's like, well, why did you do that? Like, the, by far the best men's national team in this tournament was the seven minutes after they went 2-0 down. Just play the rest of the 45 that way. Like, go out in a blaze yeah. of glory. But they, they, they went back to their ponderous play and really only getting good chances from wide areas again. Nothing through the middle. Yeah. So here we are. U.S. men not going to the Olympics again. Three straight cycles. Uh, same old story. It's just such a bummer. Maybe. Like, the Olympics are a big <laughs> deal in this country. Like, you mentioned how we take it more seriously. It's a good thing in this country that we take it more seriously. It's probably the biggest stage that the U.S. will have played on since World Cup 2014. You could argue the Olympics is a bigger stage in this country than the World Cup is, even in men's soccer. I mean, Americans love Olympics. I get it. Yeah. Like, and... It's just a it's just a big missed opportunity. There's a reason why whenever Polisic and Tyler Adams and Chris Richards were asked if they'd be interested in playing in the Olympics, they always said yes. Not every nation's players would say that. And mm-hmm. and so it, it it's it's a missed opportunity. Um the only saving grace, I guess, being that they have very important games coming less than a month later in September. Yeah in a U.S. uniform that people will be paying attention to. But the the Olympics are a transcendent event. Of course. Like, in a way that and like, qualifying isn't always. Christian Pulisic is more likely to get a Procter & Gamble sponsorship deal by going to the Olympics and playing for Chelsea, right? Like, it'll probably be better for Christian Pulisic if he went to the Olympics. But I will say, again, very minor silver lining. The U.S. Is, the US chances to qualify for the World Cup probably improved tonight because... You know, it's a late August tournament and qualifying starts in early September and there's nine games in three months in September, October, November. Those are the games really that matter. So the Olympics was always a distraction from like a from a sporting standpoint, for from an advancement of the program standpoint. But again, from a significance, from a cultural significance, from, you know, what ultimately building up the trust from the U.S. men's national team fan base is. It was a nightmare. It was a disaster. Yeah. U.S. women made it. They'll be playing the full <laughs> senior squad uh, going for another tournament title. Um, and I'll be looking forward to watching them play. I, 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 it sounds like the Olympics are going to happen, so that's good. Yeah. Um, but do we have anything to say? We've said a little bit about the senior team in this discussion. They did have a game today, uh, a friendly against Northern Ireland that they won 2-1. to one, uh, First friendly win in Europe since 2016, 2015? Yeah, uh, it's been been a while. Um, not a great Northern Ireland team. <laughs> they, should, they said they had they've gone like ten or eleven games winless now. <laughs> I will say um, though, it was a good opponent to play though because the intensity that they played, they, they might not have a good deal of quality, but they did play with some intensity, and they probably should have been one 0 up when I think it was Kyle Lafferty was played through one v one on on yeah. uh, on Zach Steffen and he dragged his shot wide. But I thought it was a good run out for the U.S. men's national team just in terms of, all right, you're going to play this way? Well, here's a team that's going to high-press you to death and like we'll run after you for 90 minutes, see what you can do with this. And, I mean, it wasn't a brilliant U.S. men's national team performance, but I thought it was a good exercise for them. Right, and I felt like it was good for two particular talented U.S. players who have had kind of some confidence issues, Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic, the two goal scorers. Confidence issues for different reasons. Pulisic not playing that much at Chelsea. Reyna has really slowed down at Dortmund after having a nice start to the season. Um, but they're talented guys. And deflected goal for, for Reyna. Pulisic wins the penalty, converts it. Um, and, and that's good to see. I think it's good for the U.S. team. And, you know, um, you don't want to make too much out of uh, out of a friendly, but these guys haven't had that many games together. Uh, they start three in the back, uh, whether, whether you want to call it a three, four, three, a three, four, two, one, or a three, six, one. <laughs> um, it was interesting to see that tested out and there were some good things coming out of it. I did feel like spacing wasn't always there in the attack. Guys were kind of figuring out where to be on the field at times. And I did feel like the sort of width that they're hoping to get out of Dest and Anthony Robinson, they didn't get as much of it as they wanted. But there were still some good things, I, I, I thought. And, you know, Eunice Moose is uh, you know, fully cap-tied to the United States, so that's a good thing. But at a very young age, he he's a real player. Yeah, and uh, I, I also hope, again, you talk about a depth thing. 
I mean, Kellen Acosta was next up. He was good against Jamaica, not so against Northern Ireland. And so right. getting Tyler Adams and Weston McKenney back will be big for that midfield. Uh, I just, I, I'm thinking kind of selfishly from a Chelsea mic'd up point of view. Um, Christian Pulisic having a chance to kind of boss a game was really fun to watch because. Yep. Christian Pulisic bossed games in the Premier League in July and August, and we haven't seen that guy since. So it was nice to see that guy again, and you can tell he was having fun with tricks yep. and flicks and being in control. So that was really good. And just in terms of my overall takeaway from the two games, Brendan Aronson belongs in that national yeah. team. And I don't know what his role is because it's just hard to fit Pulisic, Reina, and Aronson in one team. Do you stick him in the midfield, but then is it at the expense of McKenney or Musa? So maybe he's just like the best 12th man at national team level, but man, he came on in both games. It was so impactful. Like straight away, feeds Giorena in the game against Jamaica. Today was making some tremendous runs and passes. I am a huge fan of the player. I've seen him in MLS. I've seen him a couple times against Inter-Miami, and he was good, but I was never like fully blown away. I think, and you can even see in the roles that he's in, it looks very similar to the Red Bull and specifically Red Bull Salzburg system. You can see kind of the very direct, very kind of forward-thinking thoughts that he has now. And I think it completely makes sense to me, his role within this national team in both systems. So uh, I really liked his two performances for the U.S. in this camp. I really think with Aronson, and also we saw Daryl DK have a, a nice yeah. short performance in this game and be dangerous. I, I think it's really important when you think in terms of these World Cup qualifiers being three games in a, a tiny short window, you're not going to be able to start the same 11 in every game. And so you're going to have games in which Brendan Aronson might get the start and, and Daryl DK might get starts. And you kind of hope they do, actually. And so that's a big plus, I think, coming out of this window and... You know, we got another one coming up uh, in June. They're going to have a friendly against Switzerland uh, away and then follow that with the Nations League semis and final, I guess the Nations League final four, if you will. Um, I think it's Honduras in that semifinal. I want to get a little revenge <laughs> there. Um, and that's going to be the USA squad that yep. we know. And, and so that's the reason to really circle those dates on the calendar, not necessarily because it's Na- Nations League, but because that's going to be the U.S. team, like the good one. And and then I don't expect the, the best U.S. team to be together for the Gold Cup, even with the Olympics now being out of the picture. And everything's going to be focused on World Cup qualifying starting in September. And I do kind of wonder, I, I, the, the Gold Cup is an interesting one because where is that line where a player is kind of too good to not be in that squad. And also, like, even for some of the European-based players, like, Yunus Musa has been a good player for the for for the U.S. He doesn't really play that often for Valencia. He's more of a substitute appearance kind of guy. Is that good for him to get a run of four or five games in a gold cup uh, before heading back to his club again? Uh, that, that That's kind of an interesting one to me. So, like, where, where is that line of the players who make that gold cup squad, and what does that B-slash-C team look like in that tournament, obviously, a bunch of MLS players will figure. Um, but I, I am interested in that Gold Cup and what kind of team goes and, frankly, how they look. Because I imagine Mexico will probably treat it similarly. Um, but at the same time, uh, th- that's that's a good level of competition for, for whoever gets those chances. All right. Well, thanks for staying up late-ish here on a Sunday night, Chris, despite the results of uh, the U.S. Olympic qualifying debacle. Um <laughs> Can we stop calling? This... Can, can, can we need to get over debacles? Can we have any more debacles for a while? Let's put debacle to rest. <laughs> no more it's debacles. Enough. No more it's, fiascos. It's enough with the debacles. It's enough. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing, but I'm really not. Um, have a good week. May it be a better week than your Sunday night was. Thanks, Grant. Let's take a quick break, and I'll ask you a question. Do you ever want to watch Spain's La Liga and France's Ligue 1, currently the best title races in Europe, and get frustrated because they're not available on your cable or satellite system? You should try a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action from La Liga, Ligue 1, and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, a tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. 
You can also watch top leagues from Austria, Turkey, Brazil, and Argentina. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports and English and Spanish, the Women's Soccer Channel, ATA Football, Gold TV, and many more. And it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Santiago Solari. Our guest now is Santiago Solari, the first-year manager of Mexico's Club America. He's had a 15-year pro career at clubs that included Real Madrid, where he won the 2002 Champions League title, Atletico Madrid, Inter, River Plate, and San Lorenzo, among others. He went into coaching in 2013, eventually managed Real Madrid in 2018 and 19, And you've also seen him on ESPN's broadcasts of international tournaments. Santi, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Great to have you on the show. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question. You are originally from the city of Rosario, Argentina, which is much smaller than Buenos Aires, but has produced some really big names of the sport. Messi, Badistuta, Menotti, Valdano, Mascherano, Bielsa, Di Maria, Pochettino, you. In your opinion, what is special about the culture of football in Rosario? Well, I, I think Rosario has produced many, many professional, very good professional players because of different things. One of them is that we are located in an area which is very rich in producing uh, food. So it, I think there, there, there have been many generations eating quite well in that area or not suffering from, from any, you know, problems in, um, in alimentación. I don't know how yeah. you say it in English. Uh, and at least until now, if politicians keep doing their job, we are going to suffer from that too in the, in the middle of the Pampa Humeda, which is difficult to say, but it can happen. Then it's, it's, it's not only the city of Rosario, but I think it's when you name those players, some of them are from, from little towns or villages around uh, in the per- periphery. It's like 250 or even 300 kilometers around because it's, mm-hmm. we have a vast, very big country. And, and then all that space gives us an, enough room to build football pitches. I mean, there are football pitches all around the city, little clubs, uh, schools, neighbor clubs. And then it, it's the culture. So mm-hmm. because we, we start playing football since we are very little, we, I think we're a little bit obsessive. We, we don't play many other sports. Some rugby, we, we have had some individual uh, good tennis players, but it's all focused on football. So uh, we play the team, then in the, in the neighborhood, in the club team. So I think all the, those ingredients make for so many professional players coming out from, from Rosario. It's really interesting. In 1994, you actually spent a year in New Jersey at Division Three Stockton University. NCAA, yes. Yeah. Why did you come there and how was your experience? Well, I, I went there after the World Cup, the United States World Cup. Mm-hmm. My father coached the Saudi Arabian national team alongside my, my uncle. And the, the, the facilities in which they trained while we, they were there, the, the, the Saudi Arabian national team was in Stockton College. It's a college, little college. It's not so little anymore. It's a university now in, in New Jersey. So I, I went to those training sessions. We went with a, with a sparring team from, from a club in Rosario, very young players that we used to play against the, the Saudi Arabian national team. And Tim Lenahan, who was the coach of the uh, soccer team, the football team in, in, in that college at that time, sent me an in- invitation to, to, you know, to do a term there uh, for the school. And I, I signed up for the, for the, for the college and I, I played those four months and I had great memories about it. But not, not only from the 
it wasn't only a football experience, it was more like a life experience for me. It's really fascinating uh, that you would go on to such heights after being at, at a fairly small college uh, in the United States. I, I know you started your professional career at River. Uh, you went to Atletico Madrid and then Real Madrid. And among other things, you, you played all 90 minutes in the 2002 Champions League final. And I remember you were involved in one of the greatest goals in soccer history, uh, Zidane's volley against Leverkusen. What do you remember from your role in that goal? Well, the first thing I remember from the 2002 Champions League final in Glasgow was it wasn't 90 minutes. It was more than 90 minutes. I, I remember the referee adding seven minutes. And when I, I saw that, I said, oh, no, another seven minutes of this, because it was a very tight game uh, against Bayer Leverkusen. Who, they had a fantastic team that year. Yeah. And uh, the other thing we have to remember, uh, why it was such a special year for Real Madrid is, Real Madrid, we all know, it's, it's, it's the best club in the, in the history of football. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. And... That year, Real Madrid, it was Real Madrid's 100th anniversary, 2002. So that year, we, we lost the final of the Copa del Rey. And then we, we lost the league in the last uh, games. And this, this was the last game of the year of the 100th anniversary of, of such a club. Wow. So it, there was a lot of pressure around us. And uh, we had to be up to, to all that history. Even with, a, with such a great team, we, we had a great team that year, it was difficult because it's always difficult when you get to, to play a final and a final of the Champions League. So I remember that and I remember Zidane's uh, goal. Zidane's goal was, uh, was poetry. It was, it was art. It was like he was dancing. So I think all of that, all of those images that now make part of, of history and now and then they always put it on television, even if you know, so many years, almost 20 years ago, it was, it was that game. That's why I say I'm, I was lucky to be there. I was really lucky to enjoy that moment. So I went and watched the goal a few dozen times today again. I've seen it plenty of times before, but to prepare for the interview. And, and <laughs> what's, what's great about it is um, it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's not like Roberto Carlos gave him an amazing pass or anything. It, it, it was straight up in the air. Somehow Zidane picks it out. Now you gave the ball to Roberto Carlos on that goal. Like when you're on the field in that moment, from your perspective, how do you respond when you see Zidane do something like he did? Well, the definition one was amazing, no? Well, one of kind. But he was a, an outstanding football player. I don't think the the the, the build up of the play was um, was of or, uh, luck or anything because we we used to build a lot on the left flank with the with Roberto and with Zidane and we insisted a lot even in that same play if you go backwards a minute or so we insisted insisted three or four times on the left before the the goal uh, itself. But I do think that the, the play was so fast. We, we were very used to, to, to these combinations and Roberto was very fast on the, on the, on the flank. So I knew when to, you know, when to give him the ball and, and when he, he was going to be able to get it because he was a, an outstanding player as well. But the, what makes the play different was that the, Roberto Carlos plays the ball to him. Uh, lots of people say that it was like a, a bad cross, but it wasn't a bad cross. It was the best thing he he could be able to do with the ball he had. And he directed the ball to, to Zidane, but it was a very, very high ball. Yeah. And uh, the amazing thing was that Zidane decided to, to give it a try with, the, with his wrong feet, with, his, with the left foot. Very strange ball, you know. It's like ball is coming, you know, vertical and, and he hits it laterally. So it's very, it, the level of, difficult, of difficulty of the gesture is... 10 out of 10. So yeah. uh, that's why what makes it uh, amazing. You were obviously on some very special teams at Real Madrid in particular, among others. You, were, you played with the Galacticos, uh, with Zidane, Ronaldo, Figo, Beckham. What was it like to be on those teams 
with those players in that environment? Well, it, it was a, a very distinctive moment of, uh, of football. It changed football a little bit, that, that team or the buildup of that team, because uh, it took like five or six years until we, we got uh, from, the, from the start until Beckham or Owen arrived in 2005, I think. Mm -hmm. um, because before that, uh, it didn't exist all that uh, marketing around the, the football teams, or it was the first time that teams, uh, football teams started to do, instead of pre-seasons, uh, tours, no? Asian tour, American tour, like, like a rock and roll band. And uh, it was different. It was revolutionary. And uh, yeah, we lived it. Uh, it was a, a little bit strange at, at the beginning, and now it's, it's commonplace. And uh, uh, from a footballistical point of view, we started with a very, very good team that it started to increase footballistically with, uh, the, when Figo got there, then, then Zidane next year, then Ronaldo uh, the third year, and then Beckham arrived and gave it a, a, a plus on the marketing side, but then mm -hmm. the team started to have so, so many uh, stars that all of them had to start together. And it's difficult to put a team together with so many players that, you know, you, they have to be there because of the marketing. So it's, it, it, we kind of lost a little bit of balance. Uh, then, then Owen got there the, the next year and it was like a constellation of superstars, but you have to build a team. And uh, it can be a, a little bit difficult to balance all those things. But it was revolutionary, and I think it changed the, the way we, we see football now. is completely different after that team. When in your career did you decide that you wanted to become a coach? I think it was before I, I was a football player. Uh, my, my I come from a family from football professionals uh, in coach, in uh, physical fitness, and they were playing. My father was a player, my uncle too. I, I, I grew up, you know, following them, following my father, my, fam my family around the world. I lived in Colombia, in Mexico, in different cities, in Spain. Uh, my father coached in Saudi Arabia. Then in Argentina, in different cities as well, in La Plata, Buenos Aires, Rosario. So when I, when I finally settled in Buenos Aires to play for River Plate in the young divisions, I, I signed up for my physical fitness uh, university or and, and I did my, my grades, I finished my, my five years while I was playing professionally. So all that peda pedagogical part was part of my, my life very, very early. I, I had it clear in my mind, even when I, before I started to play, yes. So in 2013, I was reading, you started in, as a coach in the youth ranks at, at Real Madrid. How did those next years go for you as a coach and then move into becoming the the Real Madrid manager in in 2018 and 19. Well, after after I retired, I went to Madrid, which I consider my house because I lived so many years there. To finish my uh, coaching badges, there are three different stages, and uh, we did it in the uh, Federación Española, Real Federación Española de Fútbol, it was kind of an elite uh, coaching uh, course for former players that played more than eight years in first division. So it was, it was nice to see other teammates, compañeros from all, yeah. older, older years. And then I immediately started in, in Real Madrid and it, it was fantastic. Some of the best years of, of my life, I could say, in the formation of young players, in uh, uh, forming myself as a coach and, and then helping form kids uh, footballistically. And Real Madrid is a school of values as well. It's not only a football school. And uh, I did many years with the young kids, starting from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Then Real Madrid-Castilla, which is another fantastic experience that uh, uh, mixes the, the formation of football players and then the, the, the competitive part because they are already playing second division B in Spain, which is quite not, not quite easy for, for young players coming from the juvenile divisions. And then the, the, first, the, the first team, and, and then I did a, a, a other two years in the institutional side in Real Madrid. And I, I know I, uh, I always will be an, an ambassador for the club and wherever I am, I know I'm representing the uh, Real Madrid. I, and it will be always like that uh, forever. There are a few jobs with more pressure than being the Real Madrid manager of the senior team. 
How would you how would you describe your experience in that position? Uh, but it was very natural for me. I mean, I've, I've been almost all my professional life uh, in Real Madrid in so many different positions, playing, uh, forming young players, the mixer of Castilla, then the first team, then the institutional side. Uh, I, I think it was all very natural for me. And, uh, uh, and I enjoyed uh, all of them. I couldn't put one about the other. I mean, you, of course, coaching the, the, the first team of Real Madrid calls the attention of the media and the press and the people. But for me, uh, it was as natural as to be a, a player for Real Madrid or, or coaching young kids or, or the first team or representing the club at an institutional level. It didn't change uh, because my feeling for the club doesn't change because I, I feel very represented with the values of the club. So... I still represent the club and I know, I know what, that wherever I go, what I say or what I think or what I feel has to do with what I uh, learned uh, in Real Madrid all those years. You're back in Mexico now. You mentioned earlier that you lived in Mexico growing up. I know you spent one season as a player at Atlante. What do you like about the culture of football in Mexico? Well, they enjoy it. I love it that they enjoy football a lot. They are very passionate about it. And then I enjoy it. That is peaceful. I mean, they, of course, they have the rivalidad. How do you say? Rival Rivalries, yeah. Yes, but, but from a different point of view, I mean, for example, if you compare it to Argentina, it's sometimes that, that rivalry is almost mean sometimes. And sometimes they hurt each other, fans, or here not. Here it's, it's much sana. You could say it's a healthier health. It's more healthy. The fans know or the way they show their, their passion for their team with more respect for their rivals, probably. No, even you can, you can go to the stadiums, not now, because now with the pandemic, there's no people in the stadiums, but before when I played or when I watched it as a kid and you can, you can see uh, a person from Chivas and a person from America with their archive rivals and they're ones next to each other with their flags and, and no, nothing happens. Nobody's gonna, you know, punch the, the other guy. So that that's good, and uh, I love that about it. And then then there's there's lots of quality because Mexico is is not a um, exportar. How do you say? It's less I mean, of an export country, and and they they keep a lot of their top players. Yes, they keep a lot of the, their top players in the league, and they sign up players from top leagues like Argentina. Or, or Paraguay, or Colombia, or Chile, and they have many, many good players from all these countries, so that the league is very competitive at, at, at a footballistic level as well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, why did you want to take the job managing Club America? I think it's a mixture of the things I just said. Uh, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a very big country, very, uh, and this is a very big club, a very popular club, and uh, we have so, so many fans everywhere we go. It's fascinating seeing their passion and, and, and they want to succeed and they want to win everything they play. And I, I like that culture. I come from that culture as well. So I feel represented from some of the values they have here or, or, or the things they aim for. So we're going to try to do it. Your team is in second place right now in the league. You recently beat your rival, Chivas de Guadalajara. How has the work gone so far for you with Club America? No, it's been very smooth. The, the, the group of, of players are very competitive. They, they have an objective. They, want to, they, they, they are working very well. And then the, I think the only thing that's <coughs> missing from is the people, is the fans. Mm -hmm. We all want to see the fans back on the stadiums and you know, being able to, to, to enjoy all that color and that sound that we are, we are missing it. We, we, we want it. We want it back. I, hopefully this you know, goes back so, soon and next, next season is going to be different. Otherwise, we are, you know, dancing along there on the, on the pitch. We need, the, we need our partners. We need the people. How would you describe your philosophy as a manager? I think philosophy is a, is, is a very big word for what we do. We, we are, you know, football players or football coaches. And as, as coaches, we try to lead a project. We try to give the team an idea and, and try to convince them to do things all together, what is good to work as a team. We, we bring a methodology, of course, uh, of working. We bring, a, we bring a group of people with that, that work with us. 
uh, to make a team better, but the owners of, of football, the owners of, of the ball or, or what happens at the end are the football players. Football players own, own football. And uh, uh, I think we, we try to, you know, to organize a little bit and lead the projects. And to, of course, we have to make many decisions and we, we end up choosing who plays more and who plays less. But we lead a project, but the protagonists are the players and the talent comes from the players and they score the goals and they defend and they, they save the goals. And uh, I think they, that will never, will never change. I respect football players. I assume you watch a fair amount of football these days still. Um, are there any teams in the world, maybe it's Europe, maybe it's somewhere else, that, that you particularly enjoy watching play? Yes, yes. Real Madrid. <laughs> I enjoy watching Real Madrid and, of course, America. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, it has it's, been... very, it's very difficult to, I mean, we, we as coaches, we see a lot of football because we have to see our leagues and our games and, right. and we are the only persons, coaches, I mean, that see the, the game we play. We, we play three times, we played beforehand, we, then we played during the game, then we have to see it after the game. And then we see the, our rivals, and then as as spectators or fans, we can we, we try. I mean, I enjoy seeing other watching other leagues. Some of the Spanish league, of course, I like the Italian league, but I can I cannot follow all the games uh, or some of the English uh, league. But then then it's impossible. There's no time for more. And whoever is telling you they are watching all the French league and the, the American league and the Argentinian league, they're lying. There's, there's not enough time and and, and games last 90 minutes and if you're watching uh, closely maybe more than 90 minutes because you see things two or three times so uh, it's impossible to watch it all i guess i would ask do you see any sort of tactical trends in the game these days that stand out to you as being new or or more successful you know, i w- i would argue that maybe we're seeing less success of reactive teams, reactive tactics these days. But I don't know. Are you seeing anything in particular that you find interesting? Football is, is circular, just like the ball. And uh, sometimes, you know, possession football, one team, you know, makes the difference, like Barcelona did m- many years ago. And then another team comes around with a different style, different idea, and they succeed. So they, there's teams trying to copy that. I don't... I don't believe in that. I believe football is uh, integral. Many different things well in order to try to compete. And then rivals do their things too. So you have to do many things to not let them win. And uh, at the end of the day, of course, footballers are the protagonists. And they are, you know, you cannot follow a team only by, by their coaches. Even the most successful teams in history or teams that have changed football, like Saki in, in, in Milan, but if you, you know, go player by player, it was an outstanding uh, group of football players. Or if you name Barcelona with Guardiola, yes, of course, but then you have the best player in, probably in the history of football uh, amongst other amazing players. Or Real Madrid winning three Champions League in a row and three clubs World Cup in a row at the same time. Look at those players. Look at that midfield. Uh, look at uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, Benzema, and uh, you, you can name them all. No, Casemiro, Modric, Cross. It's an amazing team or, or group of players. So it's not only the coaches. Coaches and tactics are just a little bit of 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 that combo. Makes sense. Last question for you. You lived in New Jersey once for a year. Would you ever have any interest in coaching in the United States? Maybe an MLS, maybe the national no, no. team. I, I repeat, football is circular, and you never know. You may, I may well up, ending up where I started. You, <laughs> you never know. I, you can never say in football. I, I love football. I enjoy it, and I couldn't say what's what's next. I enjoy this moment now with America, and hopefully we we do it uh, well enough to to get to the finals here in Mexico, which is very difficult. It's a bit, very difficult tournament because you have to build up the whole season to be top but then at the end there's a, another stage that confronts you again with the team that you've beaten already which is 
<laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, that is the way it is, and you have to face it that way. And we are trying to get ready to qualify. Uh, hopefully, we we will do it. We will we will surely try. Santiago Solari is the coach of Club America in Mexico. Thank you, Santi, so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Un abrazo. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Santiago Solari, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. <music>